So at this point, you guys get that I am obsessed with lighting. <laughs> that uh, I have had a love affair with light and that I see light in a very strange way. For me, light has always been more of a, a fluid, more of like a physical emotion that you can set up, that you can walk through, that you can feel. Uh, I love walking onto a set that has constant lighting and you can physically be transported into a whole different place, a whole different world. Um, it's one of the reasons why before this whole COVID thing, I like to go out to eat. I'd like to go out to bars. I actually enjoy places that take the time to design light, to design the experience that you walk into. Um, and all light is, is how we perceive the world, right? It's the reflected light is what is bounced back at us. Uh, and that's how we navigate. That's how we uh, don't bump into shit, essentially. Um, but that's how we store our memories and store emotions. At least I do. Um, lighting for me is such an incredibly powerful thing and it's such a, a magical element uh, in filmmaking. And in order to get lighting correct, there's a lot that you need to understand. You need to understand what colors sort of make you feel certain ways. You need to understand uh, what a dim room does for you emotionally. Um, and then you also need to understand how light affects a human's face, right? And how light shapes objects because everybody's face is different. There are mere centimeter, there are mere centimeters difference between how far a forehead comes out, how far a nose comes out, how far ears set back. Um, and those those little differences change how you position a light, how you diffuse a light. Um, it's really cool stuff. And if you look at a film and you go, okay. Well, they had to turn some lights on to be able to see the scene. Understand that like any part of filmmaking, there's this minutia, this attention to detail, this attention to storytelling, this attention to emotion crafting that makes this business really exciting for me. And I know uh, is the reason why a lot of people work in this business, uh, because otherwise you'd just be a person that was just pulling cable and turning lights on. And uh, why fucking do that? <laughs> um, so today's episode is going to be about light. We're going to get into it. Um, and uh, we've got a great guest on the show. And I'll be 100% honest with you guys. Today's guest is a sponsor of the show as well. Uh, but that's not why I have him on. I have him on because I'm curious. I have never had an opportunity to sit down and talk to one of the owners of Quasar. And I want to know where these lights come from you know because it's it's that game right you know my cynicism with this shit it's that game of like who the fuck is it that's selling us this shit is it somebody that is just looking to buy another boat right is this a get rich scheme is it like hey i've got this great idea let's outsource this to china and get it cheaply made um what is the motivation behind folks and uh, I have met a lot of the guys over there and we've had people on the show from Quasar and everybody that I've met so far has really impressed me as far as uh, what their motivations are, but I, I want to go to the top, right? And that's what we're going to do on today's show. And I have heard, look, listen to me pretending like I've already haven't recorded this episode, like I already don't know everything that's going to happen in this episode. <laughs> that's, 
That's me trying to put on my radio voice. I had heard that he had such a crazy childhood. No, guys, I'm not going to lie to you. I've, I've already done the recording. <laughs> so I've, I've been through the storytelling process with him already. And uh, uh, our guest on the show today uh, has had quite the backstory. Um, he uh, grew up in a circus family, like a, like a multi-generational circus family, which was a surprise to me. Um, and then there's a lot to be said about working in the circus and working in the film industry. I've always said that they, they it's, when you decide to join a film set, it feels like you're joining the circus. Uh, I think he feels similar to it, maybe a little bit different, um, but I'm excited. Like I said, today's guest, is none other than the amazing Stephen Strong. And not only is Stephen uh, one of the heads of Quasar Science, but he is a technician. He's worked in the industry for years. Um, if you want to know his credit list, he was a set lighting technician on Iron Man. He's done a work on films like Scream, America Pie 2, Something About Mary. Uh, he was on True Blood, the series. Uh, he's a guy that... Uh, spends his time working with light and he knows through experience what the difficulties are on set, what the frustrating things are on set. Um, and that's kind of how uh, he and his partners created this company. And they wanted to create uh, a manufacturing company that made products that fixed problems that technicians actually had. Um, and so that's why when you use this, these products, if you ever got your hands on a Quasar tube, uh, they're just constructed better. They're just more functional. Um, and that's not by accident. It's literally because these guys <laughs> know what pisses us off. <laughs> um, but strap yourselves in because this isn't just a promotional episode, okay? I'm going to be 100% honest with you guys. We're not here promoting Quasar. I'm actually digging deep into who these people are which I think is important. Um, and uh, there's a lot of really fun, fascinating stuff here. Uh, we talk a lot about how to get into the lighting industry, how the lighting industry has changed, how little, how astoundingly little most of the people in the industry know about light, period, um, which is fascinating. Uh, so it's a, it's a good show, man. We get nerdy. We definitely get nerdy about lighting. And uh, these shows have been successful in the past, so you're welcome. <laughs> listen to this cocky prick yeah uh we tried to bring together another really good lighting episode for you guys and i think you guys are gonna dig this one um but before we get into it i just want to thank uh all of you guys and girls that have been following me on instagram uh at my Petri on instagram or the podcast on instagram which is in love with the process pod that's in love with the process pod on instagram um there, uh, you guys have been sending me requests for uh, guests, which is really great because it helps me come up with ideas on who to talk to and who to get on the show. Um, and you guys have been giving great feedback on the episodes. I've been getting a lot of feedback from you guys, uh, stuff that you like, stuff that you didn't like. So if you listen to the show and you're like, man, I really wish that you guys had gone a little bit nerdier with this, tell me. If there's stuff, because I feel this frustration too, especially being someone that tries to figure out how to create my style. Um, I, I would always get frustrated, not to dog them, but I'd always get frustrated with the American cinematographer because it felt like fucking fluff, right? Here's this great 
here's this great gaffer. And then you'd look at what their rigs were and you just like kind of peeking around and you're like, wow, what were they doing? Like, if you guys want more techie stuff, let me know. Like, if you guys are like, how can you try to get the gaffer for this TV series on? And can we ask specific questions? Yes, we can. As long as you contact me. Okay. So, like I said, on Instagram, at Mike, at Mike Petchy on Instagram. Whew, my mouth is not going to work for me today. Or at In Love With The Process Pod. That's In Love With The Process P-O-D on Instagram. All right. Um, let's just get let's get right into it. All right. So you know the deal. Grab those noise canceling headphones and go put yourself in a space where you can control the light. Right? Maybe it's sitting next to a large window with the sunlight coming in and adjust those blinds so that it feels nice. Right? So that the room feels nice. Just take a minute to look around and look at how that sun, how that light is actually getting into that room. Is it just coming straight from the sun? Or is it is the sun behind your house? And is it bouncing off that white house across the way? And is that how the light comes in the room? And then examine what the light does as it splashes into your space. Is it bouncing off your wood floor? Is that what's making your face feel warmer? Right? We can get real nerdy about this shit. So grab those noise-canceling headphones, sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Steven, thanks for being on the show, my friend. Thanks for having me, Mike. I really appreciate it. Uh, we were sort of talking briefly offline a little bit about this. Uh, Quasar has been a big part of our show uh, this past season two, and I'm a big fan of what you guys do. And I thought it would be cool because you've got an interesting story and an interesting background. I thought it'd be cool to sort of do an episode with you and sort of dig deep into, uh, you know, where Quasar came from. But more importantly, I think the, what people want to know is how the, how the hell did you get into lighting, period? So you've been a lighting technician and a rigging gaffer and you've been on sets for years. How did you get into lighting? How did you get your start? Uh, it was, it was nepotism. Honestly, I, I was one <laughs> of the lucky ones. Uh, my brother is 12 years older than me. And when he was 18, he, um, left, uh, the fam to go work in Wilmington, North Carolina on, uh, a lot of those eighties like Dino, De Laurentiis movies and stuff like that down there. Wilmington was kind of hot ah. back then as a filmmaking kind of, it was, it was pretty, pretty, they made a lot of, of stuff there. So um, he got into the business. And, and then as I was growing up, I remember one time I was in uh, Florida. My mom lives in Gibsonton, Florida, which is outside of Tampa. And my brother was working on uh the adventures of Superboy at universal <laughs> studios in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in Orlando. Okay. So, uh, he was working on that show in Orlando and I went up there to visit him. I think I was 13 years old. I went up there for like a few days to visit him and he took me to the stage and I helped him all day do lighting. Um, he might've been the best boy on, on the show. I'm not sure, but, 
But point being, right away walking into that stage and seeing all the lights, I mean, I can envision it right now, the, the kind of memory of seeing all the lights hanging from trusses and like just being on a movie set. I was already a little like comic book and movie geek at the time. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily because my brother was in the industry, but that it didn't hurt because it was so funny being 12 years younger than him the movies he was working on, which were like Firestarter, uh, uh, Silver Bullet, um, cool. you know, Cat, Cat's Eye, all of those mm-hmm. Stephen King movies that came out of there at that time and, and, and stuff like that. And those were my favorite movies. So it, ha- it started to have that kind of precursor in my brain that, oh, you know what, I'm meant to to go be a filmmaker like my brother and that kind of stuff. So I just remember vividly that trip to Orlando being the moment I knew that I wanted to be on set. Um, I got to be an extra uh, (laughs) in Superboy. But it was so funny. My first experience with shooting nights was that week when I went up there and we had uh, uh, night shots that they would shoot out on the lot because in Universal Studios in Florida, it's different than the way it is in Hollywood you the back lot is something you can walk around on like a theme park but you can't actually shoot on the back lot because it's the theme park so they would have in the daytime like fake movie crews shooting with no film in the camera to make it seem like projects were getting shot while you know of course the 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 patrons (laughs) were walking around but i remember that we would go out or they would go out and shoot on the back lot at night when the park was closed so here we are one night uh I probably didn't make it to 10 p.m. before I was asleep in the cab of the electric truck. (laughs) There was like no way that I was going to be into it. I I remember kind of waking up uh, at dawn still in the electric truck while they were like loading it. (laughs) Crazy, man. What a what a cool group of movies to get into. I mean, uh, all those old Stephen King movies and all that stuff was really fucking awesome, dude. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It, it's it's fascinating to hear that you were also because I myself was a little comic book nerd as well. So it's fascinating to know that you also come from that. Um, so talking about lighting and getting into it a bit more, fast forward a bit, and uh, you're working on sets like you were working on sets for like something about Mary. You were rigging on like uh, Iron Man and stuff like that. I think a lot of people listening to the show. Some people listen to the show obviously work in the business, but some don't. And I think for a lot of people who don't work in the business, they look at those end scroll, those end credit scrolls, and they do, they just don't understand what these different positions mean. Sure. So, what is the difference between a rigging electric and an onset lighting technician? Well, I used to say that's a good question. Um, I used to say that as a rigging gaffer talking to rigging. Uh, Rigging technicians, I used to say, if you want to make it sound good to your family about what you do for a living, um, don't tell them you just pull cable. (laughs) Tell them that you install portable power systems and lighting systems for the motion picture industry. So in that premise is the difference. A rigging technician prepares and does the preliminary install of the power and lighting for the movie itself, not just the lighting department, special effects needs power, 
Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all the other departments, transportation needs power, so forth and so on. And so we basically come in in the days before they shoot. We pre rig all of the lighting, preset all of the lighting, all of the power, um, make sure the systems work and all of that stuff. Then the, the, the first unit crew where the, where the lighting technicians are on, uh, they come in, they shoot. And when they leave, they, they bring lights with them too. They have a, a, what's called a truck package or, or something where they, they have their own lights for the, what, what would be beauty lighting on set that day. Um, Mm -hmm. And then uh, when they leave, the rigging crew comes in and they wrap out all of that equipment. Uh, and so the, basically the difference is the lighting technician works on set doing lighting on the day that they're filming and a rigging technician prepares and wraps the gear before and after. I think a lot of people just don't read because I got a bunch of buddies that, that have been electrics and electricians for years because uh, I originally was from Boston and Boston's got its own uh, film industry there. Um, and, uh, I think a lot of people just don't realize how much work it takes to rig out, uh, big sets and big stages and stuff like that. I think people don't realize how much cabling it requires to do that sort of thing. And, and, you know, uh, the combination of like the rigging electrics and then the grip department, it's a big ordeal. It's like, you're literally putting up structures, um, that are running like, tons of uh, of electricity through so it's it's a big process that a lot of people don't think about you know yeah you know we we always kind of i guess you know you can have the light bulb in your in your um table lamp on your desk might be 60 watts and we're talking about lights that have light bulbs as much as 100,000 watts yeah like yeah the big lightning strikes and soft sun units, but the average, the average, um, say daylight light that we use in the industry is, uh, you know, 4,000 to 18,000 Watts. That's just your, that's just your average lights for shooting in the daytime. Obviously led companies, including Quasar are trying to, figure out a way to put out that kind of light on, you know, at least half the power and uh, whether using LED or, or other technologies that are developing out there in the market. Um, the cable to run those lights is, well, 4 aught. I haven't lifted a piece of 4 aught in a long time. That is 100 feet long and 100 pounds. It's so, um, yeah. And I'm a small guy. It's so funny. When I first came to to LA to work. I, I had been in Germany at the time for a couple of years. And, uh, so I show up, I get really lucky that I do an MOW that started non-union and it turned union, mm-hmm. a dream for everyone at the time. And I got it yet again, you know, nepotism for sure, uh, admitted easy in on that level, but I definitely paid my dues once I was in for sure, because I remember we did the the movie of the week, but then the, uh, the gaffer who is actually Jay Yaller, who's now a partner in Quasar Science. Um, mm. he was kind of my foster brother growing up. Uh, he used to travel around with us as a family. And, um, uh, for your listeners, I am a multi-generation, uh, uh, circus family. Oh, no so, kidding. 
Yeah. So as far back as I can remember, my, my, my parents, grandparents, great grandparents were all circus performers. And so I was on a, a circus in Germany at the time when I turned 18 over there and I called Jay up, um, who was gaffing here in Los Angeles and my brother was his best boy. And I was like, look, I, I really want to come to LA. I really want to work on movies. And like a year later, they got, uh, a non-union job that was starting up and it was possible it might have, uh, you know, might go union. So I flew to Los Angeles, packed up all my stuff. I ran away from the circus to join a, a, a city or a home basically. <laughs> and yeah. And then, um, I came to LA and right after that MOW where I learned basically to be a lighting technician in a very short span of six weeks, you know, the intensive course, I even, you know, I was basically a day player on that show and I worked every day, whether I got paid or not, hmm. because I wanted to learn. And yeah, yeah. Jay arranged with the producers that I would be covered on the insurance so that I could get in. And like, so I, I think I worked a total of the full, I think it was like a 50 day shoot. I worked the full 50 days and then um, barely got my, my, I think I got 32 actual paid man days on the show. It was a great time. But right after that, Jay went to do a movie called Kingpin. Mm -hmm. um, the DP we were working for at the time, Mark Irwin, uh, he did all the Fairley Brothers movies. They had just done Dumb and Dumber. And uh, so he went to do Kingpin in uh, Pittsburgh and couldn't take anybody but the best boy. And I had to stay in L.A. now a total newcomer who knew no one out there and i was lucky enough that a good friend of 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 jay's who became a good friend of mine named troy white who is now a rigging gaffer he's done a lot of uh, big shows and like he, he was a rigging gaffer on agents of shield um troy white would uh try to like introduce me to people and i worked really hard so i wound up on the crow 2 rigging crew for a few weeks. And that's when I really learned what the business was like. I got, when we, we were doing like, like 27 piece four runs to the top of downtown Los Angeles skyscrapers in order to put like four full Dino lights up there and, you know, it was just insane. And it was trial by fire for sure. It was where I really experienced because working on an MOW, you're mostly rigging the locations on the day. So you're sure. dragging in some banded and you're trying to do it as quickly as possible because, you know, at the end of the day, you got to pull it out and like all of that stuff. And so when I went straight on to some big rigging crew after working on first unit of that movie, I was, I mean, I'm a, like I said, I'm a, I'm a small guy. I, I've probably at best weighed 150 pounds in my whole life, but I went to work on those rigging crews, lifting that four out, just like those big guys standing up in the truck, lugging those Jesus. hundred pound pieces of, I mean, I mentioned to you before we started that my back hurts now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it isn't a strange thing. Most of my electrician pals, you know, they cross over into forties and they're like, my back is killing me. And it's like, yeah, of course yeah. it is. Of course yeah. it is. Yeah. It's insane. The amount of work and, and you know, not only are you guys doing heavy lifting, um, but also the hours are pretty ridiculous, it, especially if you're on the shooting crew, the hours can be ridiculous. So 
Um, it's fascinating stuff. But hey, look, you made a comment there about being in the circus from a circus family. I'm fascinated by this because uh, I've always sort of related uh, the film industry to kind of being like like working on a film crew is like joining the circus to a certain extent. Um, what was that? What was it? So multiple generations in the circus. What was were your, were your family performers or were they riggers or how did, how did that work? They were performers. Um, my, I, uh, my parents had me kind of late. So by the time I was old enough to kind of start thinking for myself, they had moved from being aerialists to, um, mainly, uh, working with animals. Uh, I think by the time I was probably six or seven, they had started to, to transfer from being aerialists. You start to get old in the circus and, you either let your kids inherit the act and you just kind of stay on as like the coach, the aging parental coach, uh-huh. or you move to animals if you have a background in training animals because it's not as high impact on your body and it can be fulfilling because working with animals is awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, um, yeah, I think, uh, performing my, my dad was also, um, one of the better riggers in the, um, circus industry. So, so when you were a circus performer, you would try to make more money on the show by also working on like the prop crew or on the rigging crew for all. And of course a rigging crew in in the circus does not have to do with power and lights. It has to do with all of the circus rigging for the acts, like the flying trapeze and all Mm -hmm. that stuff. And funny enough, that's, that's how deep the nepotism goes for, for me and my family and the industry. Uh, My dad's best friend was a man named Bobby Huber. He was a flying trapeze artist. He did a lot of different acts when he was younger, and he was an expert rigger at um, hanging uh, all sorts of apparatuses and stuff like that and making them safe and all this stuff. So when when um, Wilmington started to like really catch on fire, Bobby Huber was hired to go to Wilmington and start working on movies to rig all of the big blue screens and all of this kind of stuff. And so when Bobby got there, he realized he needed more riggers. And so he called my brother up who had just turned 18, like I said, and then he went to, to um, Wilmington to work with Bobby Huber. Now Bobby Huber wound up in Los Angeles and actually one of the more legendary key grips in the industry. Hmm. Um, Fascinating. Yeah. So like there was, there's some cool stuff here that I don't want to bore your listeners, but like even cause, cause there's a man in Wilmington, North Carolina back then who used to build generators and used to gaff projects named Jock Brandis. Jock Brandis used to uh, work with Frieder Hockheim who went on to found KinoFlow and revolutionize the industry with fluorescence. Not that I'm trying to name drop at all, but it's just coincidentally cool that you fast forward to now and Quasar is where it's at kind of among people who we strangely have a non-related connection to if that makes Strange. sense. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating too. And it's, I guess that makes sense that you, if you're looking for riggers, you're tapping the, especially early on, you're tapping the, the circus folk because of the, 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 the skills 
that uh, they had for rigging. That's, yeah, that's the, the, there has been in back in the back in the eighties and nineties, it was a lot more common than you would think nowadays. Um, uh, a lot of the circus riggers now have gotten jobs with like Cirque du Soleil in Vegas and stuff because they're always doing pretty elaborate rigging and stuff like that. But back in the eighties, there was a lot of flight from the circus to the film industry. I, I was definitely me and my brother and Jay, we were not the only people to leave the circus and get in the business. Bobby Huber's not, you know, I mean, there's a ton, there's a long list of, of names of legendary key grips and, and, and technicians that, that came from the circus. Actually, it's kind of a cool, background for and me you, i you know i just and, wanted and, to leave it yeah, well that, that, i was gonna ask you that so you're was you were you on the road with the circus for quite some time with your family were you guys just living on the road and traveling everywhere is that how that worked? yeah yep i before i moved to los angeles i had never lived more than well let me take that back before i moved to los angeles i never stayed in one place for more than two months in my entire life wow Wow. I think, I think winter times down in Florida would be where we would spend like maybe, maybe, you know, maybe I'm exaggerating. Maybe it's max three months at a time, but you, you'd always like leave sometimes in the middle of winter for like a Christmas show or some kind of, you know, cause back in, even back in the eighties, the circus was still one of the main forms of entertainment in our society. Now, with the exception of Cirque du Soleil, there's really little kind of respect or, um, uh, you know. Yeah, they've kind of pulled it down at this point because of the animal activism and all that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, it's unfortunate that we weren't able to get a bunch of millionaires to back us like they were because I think that even though I am fully in agreement with the philosophy of animal rights person they and and maybe some of your viewers i don't want to get into the you know get in sure the, sure, sure you know but I, but i definitely want to say that there was a gross misunderstanding of what was going on between the humans and the animals that they worked with um and so i i think it's a little bit unfair uh kind of what happened i mean again this is not really what you invited me here to talk about, but I will definitely <laughs> say that there's nowhere for the animals to go anymore. And I really wish that organizations like PETA would have focused on the logging and the fences and the freeways and the, the turning land into, you know, factories and all, you know, the circus is not, the group of people who tortured animals. Yes, there were definitely some bad actors, just like there's bad parents that beat their kids, but sure, it, it sure. seems a, a little bit like a mistake because we knew animals the best and we knew how they were going to be able to fit into this kind of unfortunate human dominated planet that we've created where there's no place for, for these animals to go. So what are we going to do? Just let them all die off. I'd rather have them work with me to try and survive as, as like a team, you know, yeah. like it's, you yeah. know, I don't, I mean, I'll put it like this uh, and not to take the conversation dark at all, but I have to exist in this kind of, world that I may not agree with. Uh, I have to go to work in it. I have to see the suffering and all of that stuff. So 
animals are trapped in that same world and and we're not going to be able to remove the relationship between us and those animals no matter what it's it's too late for that you know what i mean sure before the industrial revolution maybe then we should have thought about protecting the planet and protecting all the animals but now it's kind of like we're stuck in this world anyway (laughs) (laughs) well yeah i mean not to go too deep into that the the I, I guess, you know, being a storyteller myself, I was completely, I had no idea that you had grown up in the circus. So these, that lifestyle is fascinating to me. And then the transition from that, from being in, it must have been such an interesting uh, way to grow up because then your family is essentially everybody that you guys are traveling with. And then how does that relate to the film business? Because I always feel like whenever I'm on a movie or whenever I'm a part of that group, it kind of feels like my family at that point. Was it like a simple transition between those two? Yeah. I mean, the circus is, I I think I'm answering your question right here. The circus is way more organized than the film industry. (laughs) So we always joke when we hear that term, like, oh, it's a three, you know, they use it in the media and stuff. Oh, it's a three ring circus. And it's like, yeah, three ring circus is very well organized, actually. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, was a, it was a cool transition just because I got to still travel a lot. Okay. Now is the point where we uh, show some love to the men and women that help support the show. And I am not just talking about the listeners at home. And I know there are some of you who are like, hey, what do I do? Exactly. (laughs) What the fuck have you done to earn this show? What have you done? Have you promoted the show? Have you told your friends about the show? Have you uh, posted and asked me for graphics to post on this show? What have you done to earn this? And there are a lot of you out there listening to the show. Our numbers have tripled this season. So there's a lot of you quiet little listeners out there that are just passively listening and not helping promote the show. And I know who you are. I know all of you by name. So promote the show. Get some graphics. Ask me, Mike, hey, what are these graphics that I can use? Take them. Do some posts. Tell your friends. Because everybody's looking for stuff to do right now. Say, hey, listen to In Love With The Process. Go check them out. They're on Spotify. They're on SoundCloud. They're on Apple Podcasts. They're on all these different places. So it's super easy for you to listen to the show. And a great byproduct of that is is that you can then be one of the guests that he ridicules. (laughs) Ay, ay, ay. Anyway, so first up. Our good friends over at Puget Systems. If you guys have been following on Instagram, you've seen that I just recently did photo campaign for these guys. I love these guys. I love their products that they're making. I'm in the process of getting a brand new Puget System, which I can't wait to tell you guys about. Super sexy, super excited about that. But if you are a filmmaker, photographer, if you're just a gamer, if you're somebody that is using your older computer and you're getting that pinwheel of death, it's not fast enough, It's not keeping up. You need something new. Why go spend an ass load of money on an unboxing experience only? Does it not make sense? I would do this with any other tool that I bought. 
buy the tool that works for what it is that you need. Go to PugetSystems.com. Consider building a PC. They're reliable. They're stable. They're upgradable. You can better use that money that you're spending that would normally be spent on the ad campaigns and the unboxing experience to get yourself a better graphics card, to get yourself a better mother's, mother's board, motherboard, to get yourself some solid state hard drives for the inside of that system. Bottom line, to build something that works specifically for your needs. And if you go to PugetSystems.com, you can choose systems based upon the software that you're using. They'll offer you up a baseline package and then they want to hear from you. So you can communicate with them and tell them exactly what you need and they'll build that out for you. Now, I know there's a lot of listeners that are not from the U.S. that have been like, fuck, they don't ship internationally. So everybody in the U.S. gets to buy these awesome Puget systems and I don't get one. Well, here's the deal. They've just started up a new uh, consulting program at Puget Systems for a starting price of $500. They'll actually walk you through the hardware that you need to purchase to build a Puget system of your own. So if you're someone that wants to build your own PC and you're floundering around the internet and you're looking for reviews and you're reading stuff, and, and here's the thing, you're gonna get reviews from a lot of these hardware manufacturers that wanna sell you the latest and greatest and the newest of shit. But more often than not, it's not even compatible with the software yet. And so what Puget Systems does is they benchmark test everything. They put it through the they put it through their paces, every new piece of uh, hardware that they get their hands on. Then they have all that information stored and they can share that with you. So definitely go check it out. Go to PugetSystems.com. Next up, I mean, I'm, I'm going to plug them, even though the show is essentially about them. It's Quasar Science. One of the best advancements in the film business, and you're going to hear me talking about it on this whole episode, has been LED lighting technology. I'm not going to bore you with the specifics because the show's about it. Go to QuasarScience.com. Check it out. Check out all the lights that they're talking about. And... Uh, check out their new series that they're doing. Like Steven talks on the show about uh, not being able to follow his creative dreams and becoming a lighting guy. Um, but that's changed for him now. He's actually writing and directing this new puppet series that is on QuasarScience.com. Uh, it gives you some insight into lighting um, and it's really cool and creative. And so like if you're a fan of The Muppet Show, if you're a fan of Dark Crystal, you might want to check it out. So go to QuasarScience.com see what's up and in the meantime please support the show i know this is tough times for everybody uh covid has punched us all in the dick uh and that sucks um but if you want to support the show we can get some of the big guys to pay for it for us so one of the best ways to do it is to sign up for an audible free trial if you haven't done so already i know a lot of you guys have if you've already done the audible trial you can't do it a second time with us but if you haven't yet, sign up, go to audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. The link will be below in the description. Click on that and get a 30-day free trial. You'll get a free audiobook. You'll get uh, access to all their content. And you'll probably become addicted and want to stick around. But if not, if times are tight and cash is an issue for you, cancel before the 30 days are up. We still get paid. Doesn't matter to us. You know what I'm saying? Audible's a great company. Amazon is a beast. Have them help pay for the show instead of having you reach in your pocket. <laughs> the way I did that read, I probably won't still have this after, but it's the truth. It's the way to go. So sign up for an Audible trial. Uh, link is below. You can help us out. If 
you've already done that, there's a bunch of other ways to do so. Like if you're potentially looking to sign up for a new credit card, uh, we have a bunch of deals with Capital One where you can sign up. And if you're um, approved for a credit card, we get some loot. The best way to do this stuff is to go to inlovewiththeprocess.com backslash sponsors. There you'll see it all laid out. Uh, you may want to sign up for a Capital One card. If you're responsible with your money, do so. I don't want to be the guy that suggests you to do this. If you're a piece of shit, you don't know how to control your money and then you become in debt. So don't don't listen to me. If that's if you understand your vices, then then don't listen to this. But if you're someone that is establishing a business, if you're someone that has to rent stuff, if you're someone that doesn't want to be tapping into that rent money that you've had saved uh, in order to do stuff, then you should probably get yourself a credit card. And if you've got decent credit, Capital One's got some really good deals. Uh, they have really good signing bonuses uh, that translate to good cash in your wallet. Um, and uh, they also will pay us if you sign up. So go to inlovewiththeprocess.com backslash sponsors and check that out. Um, and also you can just donate to us straight up if you have some free cash, which is fine. I'm not even going to ask you guys to do that. But uh, I love you guys. And more importantly, advertise the show. Tell people, get more people to listen to the show. I can get more sponsors for the show, which means the show stays for free. And I also get access to bigger guests because numbers mean something. So continue to raise our numbers, guys. I love you. Let's get back into it. So you're uh, on sets at this point. You've had time. You've had your experience. You put your time in and you're working on this stuff. One thing I always noticed uh, with my buddies that work in that department is that on every shoot, it seems like you're building some sort of custom rig. It seems like you're putting together something to make a specific task work. And then it's always fascinating to watch that thing that was constructed become something that is later manufactured <laughs> and, and sold to this business. And every time I look, if I go into like a rental house or a grip rental house or something, I'm always fascinated when I look at these different tools and it's like, okay, where did that, where was the origin of this piece? Like on what set, what grip, what key grip decided that he was gonna weld vice grips together with a couple pieces of metal to make a duck bill, you know what I mean? Like, so it's it's interesting to see the origin because the film business is still pretty young. It's like 100 and change at this point. So it's been fascinating to see the rapid growth of all these accessories and all, all these tools that in theory make things faster, correct? Well, yeah. I mean, everything makes stuff easier while making it more complicated. So <laughs> I think that, I mean, if any of your viewers have heard me talk before, I, I kind of repeat this example quite a lot because I think it's kind of profound. Uh, you know, there used to be these lights called carbon arcs. Mm -hmm. Carbon arcs would exhaust smoke. So you would have these ducks. We're talking back in the, you know, 30s, 40s. Maybe in the 50s, they started to phase out carbon arcs as some other technology, like better film stocks and stuff were coming in. But carbon arcs were the only thing bright enough to expose this kind of, you know, this, this older film stocks that need a lot of light. And so the, the, the whole stage was built 
with exhaust fans and with uh, these big hoses that would basically, you'd hook it up to the top of the light and it would exhaust all the smoke out of the stage. So obviously you weren't breathing it when they were out on set, like, you know, out in like Santa Clarita or, Clarita or something shooting some Western, they just would just pump that, that stuff would just go out into the air of the set, like a diesel truck sitting there. Uh, but, but the reason why I mentioned that example is because the entire infrastructure of filmmaking had to be built around the, the form factor of that technology. Well, now when you build a stage, now you don't have to worry about whether you're putting exhaust ports for the lights. So as things move forward, the form factor of technology has a big impact on what's possible for filmmaking. I mean, you know, when we first brought out our LED products, you know, people were able to retrofit a Kino flow and get rid of the ballast, get rid mm -hmm. of all that stuff and just plug the light in straight, right? So it's an evolution that to get back to your question, people on set are standing there and they're just sick of running into that problem over and over and over again. So some guy says like, oh, I, I think it'd be cool to have five-sided Apple boxes, or I think it'd be cool to have, you know, a, 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 a slimmer light that I can fit in this refrigerator that doesn't need to be plugged in and kind of all this stuff. Mm -hmm. LEDs, uh, of course, made a lot of the modern kind of stuff possible, being able to go on battery, which is, of course, advanced filmmaking in a huge degree, especially being on location, you do not need uh, power. If you know you're only shooting for a couple hours, you could rig the whole place on battery and not need to run any cable. And yeah. so there's a lot of kind of advantages. But yeah, the, the form factor of lights, the design of all that stuff, it, it comes from being on set and trying to solve these issues that we run into on a regular basis. I mean, we some of the biggest names in the industry uh, have invented things that now, well, I mean, the Cardellini, uh, you know, all of that stuff came from one guy that was like, I am so sick of the fact that I can't easily just clamp this light right to this, whatever, you know? And I, I, I feel I almost say that I'm glad that, the economy of filmmaking has the economy of filmmaking applies pressure on the technicians to come up with solutions so that they don't get, you know, peeled by the producers who are making choices that may not be in the best interest of those laborers. And so a sure. lot of those solutions come about as like, well, this is the 19th time I've had to like face this problem and I'm sick of it being such a total chaos or catastrophe every time. And the next thing you know, you have the process trailer or you, you know, you have the, the, mm -hmm. the HMI light or, you know, the, 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 the led ribbon or all of these things. Um, it's, it's a complicated process too, because, you, you actually have, we were talking about it the other day, you have all these people that are names in the industry that they've really made a huge impact. Um, individuals, uh, and you see 
the technology becoming so complicated now, um, it's almost outpacing the ability of, of people to sit on an idea and really think it out. I digress now into the What do you trouble. mean by that? What do you mean by that? Well, when, when a, a light used to be just a sheet metal housing for a light bulb that Osram made or whatever the big lighting companies made, uh, you put a lens in front of it. And that I guess what I'm saying is the technology was more accessible to the layman to think about and design. Mm, okay. You know, okay. now in order to fulfill what the customers want, we have to have like, like practically build in, you know, a routing network to the light. And uh, there's just, it, it's gotten to the point that to fulfill the necessities of the market, that guy on set might not be able to achieve those kind of designs because the, the technology has gotten so complex that you need to be like a master engineer to come up with a, a light that's going to fulfill the modern desire of, of the film industry. I think it's, uh, you know, I guess that's something that even Buckminster Fuller talked about. It's getting harder and harder to, I mean, when, it's getting harder and harder to advance something past where it is right now. Um, I would hate to say that Moore's law is going to slow down in any way uh, dramatically, but it's, it's, it's fascinating to, from the outside perspective and being in this business for a while, um, it's fascinating to see how technology, how each of these different avenues of technology have, have sort of had like a high speed jump, like for quite some time it was cameras. So it was the advent of the digital uh, cinema technology and then the bright future that that had, and then the advent of being able to put lenses on those cameras, and then it's all about sensors. And then you sort of, sort of have plateaued at this point where it's like, I mean, who cares? It's 12K, who cares? You know what I mean? Like you just sort of hit this point with cameras where it slowed down. And then I was seeing the, the real push with LED technology. And I feel like one of the greatest, I say this every episode that I read for you guys, I feel like one of the biggest advances that we've had in the past 10 years has been lighting and lighting and the ease of lighting and how, like you were saying before, having lights that can run on batteries, having lights that run that draw less power really affects how independent productions work because then you don't have to get a generator. You don't have to be permanent for a generator. You don't have to have four guys to do that sort of thing. So then you can sort of change your scale and scope. And I think with these advancements in, in LED technology, we've seen such a huge shift in how great productions look on a more compressed deadline. So like you're looking at uh, like Netflix television programs. I was talking to a director on a prior episode about that where it's like, I can't, it blows my mind at the level of quality that they're able to shoot for these shows and bang out what essentially would be 12 movies over the course of like five months. It's insanity to me. And I think a lot of that stuff has to do with lighting. And the, and the advancements in this technology because it, it seems to, A, have been able to strip down crews and strip down costs, but also, B, speed up the setup for those, for those sort of things. 
Um, but of course, it is a lot more complicated as far as tech, as far as technical stuff goes. Like now, you have the the creation of the board operator essentially, and how that's an important crew position on films with LED tech stuff. Correct? Yeah, and now we we call them lighting programmers or light programmers. We don't really even call like it. Used to be dimmer board operator or or board op or special operator, and now it's uh, light programmer because it doesn't matter if you have a dimmer board or not. Every light has to be programmed. I mean, almost every electrician now uh, has to, in the classic sense of electrician has to kind of know how to program stuff equivalent to what, you know, uh, camera assistants have had to know for decades basically. And so it has become uh, definitely, but you know, it's so funny though. I'd have to say I would be, if I was a, a producer or unit production manager at this point in my life, um, no matter the size of the project, uh, knowing what I know about the technology and the industry and all that stuff, I would probably be the lighting crew's worst nightmare on a show because I would just sit there and say, nope, you, you don't need that. No, you don't. Nope, you don't need that. Because, and the point I'm trying to make there is that I don't care if you're shooting a $40 million rom-com, uh, you only really need a three ton sprinter package to shoot it unless you're shooting on stage. And that's right. the kind of thing where I may be shooting myself in the foot a little bit with some of our, our Quasar's customers. But the first thing I always say is you don't need lights at all unless you're shooting at night and your film camera can't open up that far. Uh, you, you know, you don't really need any of this gear. You do need a camera to capture it and whatnot. But in my opinion, you know, unless you're shooting these very elaborate, um, effects movies, superhero movies, sci-fi movies at this point in, in, in the technology, you, you could pull off with, with literally just uh, enough lights that fit in a sprinter van package. You could pull off beautiful lighting for, I mean, it, to, to, to go a little further on that, I think it's really exciting time for filmmakers and they should definitely learn to light as much as possible without lights. And that is, that is a huge thing to say for me, the CEO of a company that sells lights. <laughs> yeah, totally. Man. And why do you why do you think it's important to light without lights? Well, on a logistical side, you need to be able to get in and out a lot faster than ever before. Things are changing. Uh, you know, LA is pretty conducive to filmmaking, but nowadays in New York City, you can't get a generator outside the brownstones and stuff anymore. So even if you're going to use like two sky panels, you got to put the generator around the corner somewhere kind of far and it's just become less and less practical to run that big power and time wise you know if you can if you can block a scene thinking about how much faster you can light the setup so you know try to use your available light as much as possible try and uh you know don't tweak too much learn um how to make film in a more rapid, you'll get more work, I think, as a technician or a gaffer or a DP. Um, if you really, you know, there's two kinds of DPs. There's the DP that goes into a production and 
he doesn't budge, he's going to get $100,000 of lights on that stage. That's the look he wants. And for some reason, they give it to him. But Mm -hmm. the majority of DPs, you don't have that power over the budget anymore. You've got to do it the way the producers want to do it and the time that they want to do it in. And if you can't, they're going to find somebody that can. It's, it's, It's not... It's not so much an argument anymore about, no, we need 30 Airy Max 18Ks outside these windows because that's the way I want it to look. It's, it, you know, maybe on a $100 million movie, but on the majority of projects, they're going to just be like, no, I don't really need, it doesn't need to have that to look good, you know? And so I think DPs especially, they need to learn all the tricks so that they can fit uh, fit it in the budget and still have something that looks, you know, cinemagraphic. Is that the right, you know, way to say it? Like, yeah, you know. Yeah, right, right, right. It's the, it, um, totally. And I think that that's a valid, that's a valid thought to have with this thing because everything is go faster, go cheaper, go quicker with this stuff. And because of that tech, but because of the camera senses, because of the technology, you can do a lot with uh, with barely any light. Like I know with some of the the high, high, high ISO sensors, you know, you're shooting at twenty five thousand with very low uh, grain and very low distortion on them. Uh, I've talked to gaffers that have been playing with that, and they're literally spending more time flagging out uh, street lights, uh, trying to get rid of light because the sensors are so intensely. Uh, uh, sensitive. Yeah, it's it's funny too on that level. I I another thing I probably say too often is you know, I I remember being the first trade show I saw the um, Vericam at the Pana, Panasonic. I think Vericam. Um, they were trying to show like exactly how low light level you can shoot and still get strong, like you know lighting characteristics and the exposure and kind of and for the first time they had like a blacked out whole booth where you walked inside of it and then it was dark in there and then they had like the you know the 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 stand-in sitting there and then the cameras you know and it was when you walked into that black box the light level was so low that you would trip over anything that had been in there and (laughs) And, and I thought two things when I walked in there, wow, this technology is insane on the level that you could probably go out into the woods on a barely lit, with starlight almost, and shoot a pretty well lit and like exposable kind of thing. But, but the second thing that popped in my head is you still have to be able to work on set. You, you know, like it, if if you were able to make the the brightest light the smallest object, you'd still have to put it on a stand and grab it and put it on the truck and all of these things. So there's a human limit, is I guess my point to how how dim, for instance, the set can be. I I, I still got to have enough light to work and things like that. So I think we're actually finally getting to. I mean, I say it about the eye phone all the time commercial for apple is that as the iphone is getting bigger because people want a bigger screen and all that stuff the stuff inside is just going to continue to get smaller until 
you the, the the iPhone will be mostly a housing for like a centimeter wide chipset. Right. You know right. what I mean? Now <laughs> now that like you you think back like like companies like General Magic back in the eighties and nineties who were, were basically trying to make the precursor to the iPhone while well, the idea was there, but there was no way to jam all of the existing technology in something that small. Well, now right. we're almost passing that threshold where the size of the chipsets inside are now so small that we, we, we can't make this housing. You know, it's no longer about, oh, how can I make this cell phone smaller <laughs> anymore? You know what I mean? <laughs> and so even with, with light technology and all this stuff, it's advancing so fast, um, you know, that we're going to have to start designing for ergonomics more than we're designing for the, the actual tech set that's inside the light. That makes sense. And, and I think a lot of people, I think what happened at least with the, with the camera tech, when it was becoming big, people were like, okay, so these cameras are incredibly sensitive. So I don't necessarily need lights. I could just sort of do this, but they forget that the ultimate trick of a cinematographer, the ultimate trick of photography in general is to convince the audience that this, one-dimensional object has depth right has the like you look at this thing and you go okay so i can literally put my hand into it this is a space that exists and to do that you need to be able to control light you need to be able to sculpt light you need to have different light levels at different points and i often find that when i shoot stuff and i'm using high iso stuff it would drive me insane because it would almost flatten everything out and i would have so much trouble sort of manipulating this light uh and trying to get it so that I could shape it. Um, and granted, it's it's useful in scenarios, specific scenarios, but you still got to remember that you, you got to light stuff and you have to be able to add depth with stuff and you have to have uh, exposure ranges and exposure differences and, and contrast ranges and all that sort of stuff to to make it feel like it's, a, like it's an actual thing and it's an actual place. Um, and so at that point, the lights, <laughs> I, I would often find that when I would use like early light panels and early um, LED technology, it wouldn't dim down enough. <laughs> right. So you li you're literally like dimming it all the way down, diffusing it like six times and then bouncing it off a wall somewhere. And then it's like, okay, th that kind of works. You yeah, know you're I mean? putting so, ND on it. Yeah, it's, fa it's, it was, yeah. it's fascinating. And it must be uh, annoying because I've had um, Ted on the show and I've, I've, I've talked to the dudes from Indie Mogul. They've been on the show and we talked about um, that event where uh, we were dealing with RGB lighting and, and, mm. and trying to handle it, – it's a fascinating thing because you guys aren't just making lights anymore. You're not making these units that just put out a certain amount of light or luminance. You're dealing with how the cameras are capturing these things and how the chips are processing uh, the lights that are coming out of it. So it must be incredibly frustrating to sort of work in coordination with the rapidly changing camera industry at the same time. You know? Well, what was, what was really realized when digital uh, technology came around was that nobody really knew anything about light, like not lighting, <laughs> but light. the actual, you know, it's a physical thing it flows into your eyes or into the sensor like water i mean i'm not trying to like you know get all psychedelic here but dude i, I it, say that all the time i say that know, same thing all the time it, it you you cannot actually see an object you only see the light that is reflecting off an object i mean how many people don't 
really even know that the reason why something is red is because it accepts all the light spectrum except for red. It's crazy. So like when, 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 when we started having all these light spectrum issues, um, you know, even like speaking of KinoFlow, they dealt with it with fluorescence. They had to get fluorescence that would not make, you know, expose all green or magenta on film. And that was a hard thing for, for, for um, companies to figure out like KinoFlow and, and, and early uh, fluorescence tube manufacturers for the film industry. So you fat, so that was like a precursor. And then mm -hmm. HMIs, HMIs, we knew like, oh, they could be a little bit green or magenta, but, but you were still, you were still only like kind of, you're, everything was predictable at that time because it'd been around so long. Like, of course, when Technicolor and Color Film came out, not only the makeup departments, but the set painters and everybody had to be retrained into what it meant to like expose film in color because, you know, they used to put green makeup on the actors' faces so that they would be a certain tone of gray next to, say, the wall or the other actor, all these things. Well, as soon as you got the color, you can't be putting green makeup on somebody anymore <laughs> and things like that. And so when you fast forward to, you know, when I was coming up in the industry, I didn't know anything. that The gaffer would say, put quarter CTO on that light, and I knew it would make it a little bit warmer and then he knew that it would make it a certain amount warmer on the film. And like maybe the next day in dailies, they might be like, Ooh, that was a little bit much over there. Uh, you know, but probably not very often because they just, it was a trade knowledge that was passed down and learned and this kind of stuff. And then you get to, you get to now with the digital sensors and the digital emitters, I guess you could say the light emitters that are, that are basically, you know, uh, uh, solid state lighting, like LED and stuff like that. It exposed that top to bottom, the lighting side of the industry didn't actually know anything about the physics of light. Um, you, you know, and I, you mm. certainly would have not caught me at a trade show in 1999. I didn't care. I wanted to just go to set work at my job and then go home and, you know, live my life. And it's so funny that, that we have to educate a bunch of people that you would have thought already knew the intricacies of light spectrums and how light works as the physics of, of light and, and LEDs have kind of blown open that fact that you could almost say nobody knew what they were doing. <laughs> right. Because like you were saying before, it, it was more of a trade. You go and you learn the steps and the, I mean, filmmaking for, for years is all about process. It's all about like block light shoot and the very specific steps that you take. And then it's almost an apprenticeship business where you go and you spend time on, you get your hours in if you're going to join the union and you go through the process of understanding this is how you run this cable. This is how you use CTO, CTB. So it's, it's all steps that are passed down through that apprenticeship. It's, I don't think I've ever been on a set where I've heard a gaffer sort of explaining like, this is how light works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So you're totally right about that stuff. And it was a fascinating because when I went to that seminar uh, that uh, was put on about LED lighting, it was it was a mind blowing experience sort of process that and then see how many people had no fucking idea that this was a thing. Um, so it's it's crazy. And then it, 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 it sort of hit this point. I always hit this point with technology because 
I've known quite a few and I've had quite a few sponsors that I've met with people that build monitors and build cameras and stuff like that. And oftentimes you feel like technology just sort of runs, it becomes its own beast and it's running because it needs to run. And it runs so quickly these days where you're like, do we need the next advancement yet? Can we just take a break here and like work with this sort of stuff? Do you feel like technology is advancing at such a rapid rate now that it's got a mind of its own or is it something that's going to slow down? I think that it's not necessarily going to slow down. I mean, you know, again, I, I think that there's still a couple of years ago, we thought that LED technology was plateauing. Like, okay, you know, we figured out that kind of RGBWW is like the best way to kind of, and then next thing you know, everybody's like, no, we've, we've started to figure out yet another advanced way to do uh, light that, to kind of control the fidelity of the light spectrum in the light and give the camera what it needs and all of this other, you know, in these next step. And it was like, oh, my God, it's not anywhere near plateauing in that way. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, here's what I would like to say to to your listeners is that it used to be go to Hollywood like go go if you want to be a filmmaker go to hollywood or you know go to the big centers of i implore you if you want to be a filmmaker now do not go to hollywood stay in whatever market that you you can be an incredible filmmaker you can find incredible actors you can find incredible technicians anywhere you're at and if you really want to become a big filmmaker don't ask for help do it yourself And that is, and the reason why I say that is when I was a kid, and maybe this is just an excuse, I could have figured out a way to, you know, we we just got VHS cameras when I was a kid, let alone access to anything that you could do all the dubbing and stuff yourself. And now on my iPhone, I could create something that you wouldn't know the difference, whether that was a a a commercial Lexus commercial filmed, you know, with a $3 million budget and Alexa, you know, and all of that kind of stuff or whether I'd done it on my phone. And so I would say the most important thing to know about the technology is now more than ever, you don't need any help. Take out a loan by yourself, a uh, uh, the best camera you can afford and go start shooting stuff. It's, better time than ever to just do it yourself. And that's the number one way to success. Because I tell you what, I wanted to be a filmmaker when I came to Hollywood. I didn't necessarily want to be a lighting technician. That's just where I got my in because I had family in that department, you know, Mm -hmm. but I would have to say that the worst thing that happened to me as a wannabe filmmaker was coming to Hollywood and starting to work in films because it just changed like the way I perceived my future and the way that I I interpreted my access to what amounts to power in the industry, I started to see that once you were working on, you know, Spider-Man 19 as a lighting technician, you had chose that career and people were going to view you as that. And if you Mm -hmm. wanted to walk up to the producers and go, Hey, I would love to be a director. Here's my, you know, uh, it's just like going up to a producer and saying, here's my mixtape. That thing's going in the trash. Mm-hmm. They, they will not read your script because they already have a pile of scripts they're interested in making. They're not going to easily grant access until you show them that you're 
that you have the skills. And so that, <laughs> that little rant uh, being done, I would say just do it yourself. Completely agree. Completely agree. And being a director that uh, just moved to Hollywood after 19 years of doing and establishing my work and establishing my style, I thank God that I worked outside of this city. And I thank God that I was able to make stuff in my own rule system. And it was while doing it, it always felt like I'm, I think I'm doing it the way that they would do it. And I think this is the process of doing that. And then in that in that uh, practice, I ended up co literally coming through the back door and creating my own way of doing things, which now is what I rely on. So right. when, when I now have the uh, footage, I now have the stuff that is, that is worth something. So I can walk into a room and they go, oh, wow, this, you can fucking do this with this? Oh, okay. It, then then it's, it's, it's valuable because eventually you still have to come back to where the cash is. Right. Uh, you're you're going to hit a plateau. I mean, there's a difference between uh, making movies on your iPhone with your friends. But if I think ultimately you just you hit a plateau as far as like what you can pull off in the physical world. Sure. And so like if you're a storyteller that's trying to develop, then eventually you need money. I right. mean, like it's an art form. It's the most expensive art form that you could possibly decide to do as an artist. <laughs> well, nobody's going to give you a chance unless you show them what you're capable of on your own. So another good yep. thing that I'd like to say out loud is don't save your best ideas for later. You'll have more ideas. And if you don't have more ideas, then maybe you pick the wrong line of work. So now is the time. Don't make excuses. Go out and shoot Go out and use all your best ideas now to try and create the content that will then get people interested in your work. Um, you need to paint uh, for free for a while before you start charging for your paintings and don't save any ideas for later because you may never get the chance. You know, you, you may realize that you didn't make it and you have to go to work at an Amazon fulfillment center and it wouldn't have been great that you used your best idea five years earlier when you were making that short film. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, like yeah, just yeah, totally don't ever, did. don't ever hold back and don't ever like, you know, it just practice, right? Practice makes perfect. I mean, Mike, you, 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 you I, even as a CEO of this company, like every day I'm like, Oh, who I could have done yesterday better. And that kind of thing. So, Definitely, um, with all the technology out there, just just practice and try and and like you know, because later you're gonna look like such a skilled. I wish I'd learned to edit. I'm so embarrassed that as a a filmmaker in this modern time, I, you know, I I was talking earlier to the team um, that really there's nobody here at Quasar that knows how to use Adobe Premiere really, you know, and then like meaningful way. So we're we're all gonna in the marketing team, which I, I kind of do a lot of work with, we're, yep. we're all going to learn Adobe Premiere so we can cut our own stuff and kind of take power over it. It's, it's been an inspiration to us. Um, I'm only 45 myself, but, but that's kind of an old timer in the industry to a certain degree right now. So it's, it's to me, we're getting inspired by these up and coming kids who they just don't see limits. They just see, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, I need to, I, you, are you, 
in, at 19, if you'd have told me I had to sit down and learn, learn Final Cut Pro, well, no wonder I just became a lighting technician because no way, <laughs> no way. But now it seems like the kids are just so on top of all that complex learning and just picking it up super fast. And next thing you know, you can actually be a good director, editor, writer, shooter. You can actually have the full set of skills that kind of, you know, you, you, if you come to Hollywood too early, you'll just be a director. Sure. No, totally, totally, totally. And, the, you know, a big part of that is this whole shared consciousness. A big part of that is the Internet. So with anything, even if you're cooking, you're just like, let me go look up a quick recipe and then <laughs> right. I'll, bang, yeah. I'll bang this shit out. I, it's such a fascinating thing that uh, YouTube has essentially just become sort of this shared knowledge if you really know how to use it. There's a lot of trash in there too, but if you're sorting your way through that, it is this shared knowledge where it's like, wait a minute. And it, there's this point now with a lot of young editors where they don't even fully know how to use the software. They'll just literally go, I know how to start it. I know how to bring clips into it. Wait, how do I do this? And they'll hyper search, like specifically search for like a specific thing that they're doing. And then that's part of their editing day. So literally having YouTube open at the same time while editing is how they work. Right. Which is fascinating. Um, I think that, if if I had to if I had to throw in a counter argument to it, I think that a lot of us are really hyper focused on the shiny pretty shit. So they're really hyper focused on like the coolest and latest and the greatest new gear, and the less sexy thing is storytelling, right. and actually the 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 origins of storytelling and how stories come together. And I think what we're seeing is people that can shoot really great stuff and that can cut proficiently but they're they're having trouble grasping story and one of the big things that we talk about on this show is like do yourself a favor go back and study the greats go back and look at um how stories are brought together and like how scenes are brought together and how themes are brought together um and then if you can apply that the same way you do with your photoshop skills with your uh premiere skills then you'll you'll be king i think I think if you can go back and remember that stuff, it's just, you know, the old methods of, you know, how to shoot a scene don't come in a shiny unboxing experience. That's <laughs> so. right. No. Well, that's the thing. And when I'm Netflix right now, are you kidding me? I press play on something and it doesn't. I mean, I, I know right away if if, if oh, they totally. knew what they're doing or not. And it's such it's both lighting, of course, and blocking and I mean, that's the fear of being a filmmaker. Even me wanting to be a filmmaker is while you're shooting it, how do you know it's not going to be that thing that, oh, this is a complicated way to say it, but those of us who know how to do it um, can see when it's not there immediately. Yes. And it affects yep. your ability to enjoy something. But it's like you said earlier, the trick of a filmmaker is to make you forget that it's being shot with a camera and that there's a crew there and that there's that whole thing going on. You, you do not want to realize, oh, you know, this is a group of people who they tried their best, but, you know, oh, well, you know, for, you know, okay, cool. You know, like not that great. It, it, it's that funny place of how do you know that you're not doing it right? And like, how do you, you know what I mean? Because sometimes I press play on some of these movies that had to have at least a million dollar budget. And I'm like, who you hired the wrong DP or, or something is wrong. But back to your point about storytelling, um, it's 
it's it's weird because I wouldn't ever say generationally that 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 uh, you know Gen X is like the first generation to of course grow up with what we now know as modern life. You know, we had the Atari and then the yep. Nintendo and then yep. you know computer and the VCR and and the camcorder and you know our parents had the eight millimeter cameras and stuff like that for home home cameras, which is where like like you know in the in the fifties and sixties you had a lot of the first you know home movies really being recorded and stuff like that. But you fast forward to Gen X is really the first generation that had what we now know as modern existence. And there was a fight by artists to, 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 as, as marketing started to take a hold of what content was obviously radio and its beginning was just, they only made content for radio to fit in between the commercials. They didn't make commercials sure. to fund the, it didn't start as an art. It started as advertising and then they had to fill the dead time with art. And so TV is a lot that same thing. And I think that, that, you know, a lot of artists tried to fight what amounts to the reduction in, um, in, uh, 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 I'm, I'm losing track of what I, uh, 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 of, uh, time span. Like your, you, the ability okay. to listen to like a seven minute song, for instance. So mm-hmm. now we get to like fast forward. And I think the reason why story is so sacrificed now, it's because we have such a short attention span for, you know, we, we, we grew up with, with, with star Wars, not Macbeth. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know I mean, but I also feel, yes. And I think that because I have this conversation all the time, especially when I'm pitching movies and, and going through this process. And I think that, uh, I think that there definitely is a lower attention span, but I, I also think that it comes down to trying to juggle that suspension of disbelief. And I think that, for instance, this podcast like this episode is going to be a short one. I've done two and a half hours on this show and I've had people listening to the show go, we love those two and a half hour segments. So I don't necessarily, I think that the producers and the, the money people like to say that shorter is better, quicker is better, all that stuff's better. I don't think it is because you have people that are willing to sit down and literally binge an entire series through 13, 14, 15 hours. And you're sort of looking at this going, okay, well, why does that work? It's because the filmmakers or the storytellers or the artists know their audience. They know how to hold on to their audience. They know how to captivate their audience. Uh, Christopher Nolan knows with his sound design and with his music and his scoring how to keep you completely immersed in a movie about British soldiers trying to survive on a beach that has absolutely like no connectivity with any of the youth at this point. Yeah. And you're, you're still watching this film going, I feel suspense. I understand that the characters are in peril and I identify with these people. And so I think that um, in this saturated industry that we now have, which is so many people are getting into it and everybody has access to this stuff, you're starting to see a distilling almost and sort of like this byproduct of the people that do float to the top, the artists that do float to the top are the ones that have a knowledge of how technology works, have a knowledge of how all this stuff, how these tools can benefit the ultimate art of storytelling. 
And I think that if you're going to be long-term successful, you're great storytellers. I mean, there's no, it's no strange thing that Stranger Things was so fucking successful. I mean, that, that show literally poached from the best of the best of nostalgia and storytelling techniques. Uh, so, of course, that show works. You know yeah. what I mean? I, I think you're dead on there. And, and definitely, I, I definitely wasn't implying that people didn't have the capability to have a long, long attention span. It's just, look, I'm a, I, I'm a, I, I'm a Noam Chomsky fanatic. I, I, I can, I can listen to that guy talk for three hours when most people can't get through a sentence. And he, he's right about what concision did to our society, where if you make people try and fit their point between commercials, you will never be able to discuss anything and you will absolutely dumb down society. But there's a hunger for, I'm going to remember when I was traveling around the circus, books on tape. You couldn't mm-hmm. read a book too much because, well, you're either traveling at night because it was dark and then you can't really have a light on in the cab because, you know, your mom's driving a big semi-trailer and you're going to, you know, make a wreck and all that kind of stuff. So books on tape were like a big thing for me. I had my Walkman and a bunch of, you know, and almost at every truck stop, I would spend my money on yet another book on tape. And, and, and I always wanted movies to go on. That's why sequels were such a big part of our generation where it was like, no, I want to see more of this. I want to immerse myself. Like I immerse myself in a book or a comic book or one of these books on tape. I want to, I want to, I want to become this thing. It's almost, it's almost dangerous addiction wise where you can maybe get too lost in one in wanting (laughs) to be in these worlds and things like this. And, and so I think that long format storytelling is so great now to be able to watch 10 hours of a story rather than an hour and a half is, is right. You know, it, it, it definitely, I feel, even though we're seeing like these, like what's it called? Like Queeby and like this stuff pop up, um, even sure. YouTube and, and like the featurette world that was, I, I almost want to say there's not as many featurettes now as there were when featurettes first were like the big thing as a way to like expand the experience for the viewer and all of that stuff. Like, you know, Star Wars coming out back in the, the, the prequel days, like they would have all of that, um, like featurette storylines and kind of stuff like that. I, all sure. of that expanded experience is going to feed that hunger that people have to kind of to 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 go all into experience it becomes almost like a theme park now watching a movie where the reason why you like going to disneyland is because then you are in the world it's like a renaissance fair people like to go to rin fairs not because they just are fantasizing about being goblins it's because it's immersive yeah, and they want to, yeah, yeah. they want to kind of escape in that way. And I mean, personally, like virtual reality, for instance, you know, you see all these shows ever since the matrix and beyond, and even before that, of course, like just classic storylines about like, you know, immersing yourself full in virtual reality and stuff like that. Unfortunately, every time I put one of those goggles on, I about throw up, but <laughs> that'll be, yeah, my, that'll, that'll be, that'll be the, 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 the nail in the coffin for me is that once they can upload uh, you to some system, I'll just, it'll just make me nauseous. So I won't be able to go. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, well, I mean, look, this has all been incredibly fascinating. And we really haven't talked a lot about Quasar. And I, I, this is kind of what I wanted from the show is I wanted to learn more about you. And I wanted to sort of get into where you come from because I'm always fascinated at the people behind stuff and the people behind uh, technology and, and, and where these ideas come from. And so it's been, it's been a fascinating conversation with you, man. It's been uh, really interesting to, to hear your, your story. I appreciate that a lot. I, I just uh, tend to think I sound like a crazy person. So hopefully the viewers uh, didn't click off after 10 minutes. Uh, Dude, there isn't anybody crazier on the show than me. So they're used to it. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Um, so uh, in general, you know, I, I guess I just want to briefly, because we're kind of getting to the end of our, our time here. I just wanted to briefly talk a little bit about what you guys are doing over at Quasar. And I think it's important. I think one of the reasons why I really fell in love with what you guys do, and then I can't take full credit for it. I was my good friends when I was back in Boston, like Ruben and the guys over at um, uh, Red Sky, they loved you guys. And that that's, was my introduction to it. And I think it was put to me as like, these are lights made by lighting techs. Like these are people that are actually on set and they're the ones making this stuff. And so that really fascinated me. And I think that's very true with all of my experience that I've had with you guys and your team and your staff, um, that it is people that use this shit. And it doesn't feel like, I don't want to say it in a derogatory way, but it doesn't feel like a company, a guy looking to just buy another Lamborghini. You know what I mean? And right. you sort of, with a lot of this other tech gear stuff, you see these guys and it's like, this is their get rich scheme where it's like, oh, cool, here's an industry and I'll just fucking prey on that industry and how do we make this shit cheap as possible and put it out there and then, uh, hey, guess what, I got another book. Yeah, and well, I definitely can say that we wanted to make it affordable for people and um, simple. Simple was a big part of our original, I mean, Quasar, a lot of people don't know this, but Quasar started out wanting to be the uh, just the LED light bulb company. Like the mm. tubes were a, just a, a thing, you know, the, your customers tell you what you are as a company, you don't get to decide. And so um, we, we started out making light bulbs of every shape and size that were basically meant to retrofit, you know, and stuff like that. Because as a rigging gaffer, I was having a really hard time finding um, incandescent light bulbs in quantity anymore, especially in the more like high watt specialty versions that we would get in the film industry. Uh, mm. When I was rig gapping on on True Blood, we we started out using these 500 watt bulbs called EALs, which is like a, a par 40 a, a reflector bulb, but it's 500 watts, and we would get them, you know, easy by, by the dozens and dozens and dozens, and um, by the you know, just a couple of years later, by the end of that show, they were next to impossible to find. And mm -hmm. so we thought, well, there's the, there's the idea. You need flicker-free, uh, smooth dimming, good color LED light bulbs for the industry. And, you know, when the tubes kind of took off uh, on their own thing, but back to your point, you know, I don't always think we actually design the best lights, but our intention is the workflow. What solves particular workflow concerns 
And then the other philosophy we try to go by is, you know, we haven't made a panel because there's enough panels out there, you know? And so I think that we try to focus on what is, what is not being solved in the market and how can we head towards solving that thing? We're, we're almost more of a design company at this point with the way we think than we are an LED lighting manufacturer because it's all about solving problems for us on set. Um, and, and that's kind of the main mythos of the company. And we have that experience to hope that we know what the problems are on set. Uh, my partner, Evans Brown, still works as a cinematographer. And my partner, Jay Aller, still works as a gaffer on projects all the time. Obviously, not right now um, because of sure. the situation. But but for sure, we, we try. I tell you what, Mike, I haven't rig gaffed since the sky panel came out. So in a weird way, I'm as disconnected now from set. That's how fast technology is going in that way that, you know, I, I joked in the partner meeting the other week, we should just come up with 10 designs and let the users choose which one we make. Because it doesn't matter to me what you like on set. I just want to make whatever solves your problems. I'm not trying to convince you to buy my light. You tell me what light I need to make to solve your problems. I mean, that's weirdly the mythos of the company from the get-go if it was easier to do custom projects i tell you what we would probably work more on 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 that kind of thing unfortunately you have to you know if you work on a light that costs you a hundred and fifty thousand dollars or more to develop you then have to pay that back you know because sure, the bank doesn't sure, sure. care about your high-minded ideals of solving workflow but <laughs> but you know but for sure as a company being lighting technicians like i said i tell you what Back when a UPM used to sweat me for the budget, I would reply by saying the only two lights I need are on the front of my car. <laughs> so your project needs all these lights. And so for us, that's kind of where we come from of if, if our lights are a total pain in the ass, then, then they're not solving any, any problems, you know? So I think, we're most sensitive. And I think, you know, we screw it up a lot of times. Uh, we're doing our best, uh, to be honest with you. Um, times are rough out there uh, in the economy and there's a lot of competition. So the pie is getting very, very spread very wide um, in the tribe right now. So each piece of the pie may not cover what you really need to do to make the best equipment for the customer and uh, not making excuses at all. But it's definitely a tough um, you know, you, it's hard to, you try not to take it personally, but when people kind of trash you for not doing this or doing that, it, it gets a little bit like, you know, kind of, you know, where you just want to crawl up in a closet because, you know, you're just doing your best trying to, you know, do something that'll help technicians be able to get through their day. I mean, I think I, I say it all the time, you know, when, when, when you show up at, at 5 a.m., the sun's not, you haven't had coffee at all. Nobody's excited about what lights are in the truck. They're not going to open up the truck and be like, oh, today I get to use this special, super awesome light. And oh my God, it's going to be great. No, you're like, oh, I want to go home already. And so to me, you know, that's the kind of thing that we focus on in our company. 
Well, dude, I like I said, I'm a big fan of you guys, um, and uh, I'm a big fan of you listening to your story and listening to why it is that you do what you do. And uh, I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk on the show with us about this. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to speak. I uh, I hope it was fun. <laughs> it was great. It was great, man. Um, and uh, this is usually the part where I allow the guests to sort of give a little bit of advice or get a little bit of insight to young people coming up in the business. And then I think for you, I'd probably ask, all right, so, and you might have already addressed this, but I'll ask it again. If you're someone that... Uh, is obsessed with lights and you're someone that's obsessed with lighting and you want to get into this industry, what do you think the most important first step for someone, it, uh, for someone that is trying to be, you know, get into being a gaffer or get into being on set? I know it's going to sound stupid, but learn how to light. I mean, um, you know, set up a camera, even if it's a still camera at home and, and go buy a, a, a one of those, you know, clip light work lights that you buy for your garage or whatever, and throw a light bulb in it and start to shape objects. Try to remember that you light is, is you are, you are throwing, you are throwing like a physical object, a blanket around, around things. You know, you have to learn about contrast. You have to learn what is the camera see when you do this practice lighting it's you can't show up on set and then go oh I'll, uh, maybe i'll try and put a light over there and then you're like oh that doesn't look good okay move it right move it left move it up move it you, you can't you need to you need to practice and get a concept of of you know watch tons of movies and try and deduce what they did to make that effect a, a, a key thing that 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 i can say is like find your favorite movie Find your favorite scene in that movie and try and recreate that lighting at home. And don't don't be like, oh, I won't be able to do that because I don't have a sky panel. I don't have RGB. I don't have all these gels. No, no excuses. Just practice and you'll figure out what looks good and then it'll become secondhand to you after a while. So, yeah. And like you said earlier, YouTube, go learn. Go. You can, you can be taught to light on YouTube at this point in very, very, very positive, like, you know, great ways. So I think that's what I would, would say to people is practice and uh, understand the technology as well. Know about power. If you have to plug lights in, you need to know that modern buildings have 15 amps max. You don't want to be going in to do your first job as like a gaffer or a DP for that matter. And you're blowing all the breakers. So, you, you know, it's not, it's not as simple as being a creative. You have to have a technical kind of edge and understand the math and kind of all that stuff. So I, I guess practice and research. All right. So what did you think? I was completely, I'll be 100% honest with you. I had no idea. Steven grew up in the circus so once that came out it was like okay let's shift the I want to know more about that because <laughs> that seems like such a fascinating life um, and we probably could have done a whole episode on that uh, but I also did want to take away from those of you that wanted to know more about lighting and I think his advice on how to get into the industry is incredibly strong uh, definitely follow his advice 
Um, and one of the things that I did to teach myself lighting when I had no fucking money is I literally went to Home Depot and bought a $3 clip light and like a fucking 60 watt light bulb and, and sat down and I didn't even have a subject. I had a mannequin head and I sat down and I, I moved that light around mannequin head and if you don't have a mannequin head you probably have an action figure you could do it on a smaller scale with action figures um and then was able to play with that and if you uh want to get even nerdier with it you can potentially get yourself like a really inexpensive dimmer at home depot and hook that thing up to a dimmer and then be able to dim it and see how that changes the light and then you start to play with leds and the cool thing with LEDs is that the lights themselves don't get hot temperature-wise. So you can start diffusing them. If you can't afford to get yourself super fancy diffusions, I've diffused LEDs with, with fucking paper towels before. So be clever, be creative, be safe with it. Do a little research, understand how wattage works, understand uh, how many watts you can pull from circuit breaker, Understand that you're still working with electricity and electricity can still kill you. So they haven't created a technology that keeps electricity from fucking murdering you yet. Uh, and believe me, I've done this. I had a story years ago when I started, I was uh, peddling myself off as a gaffer, which I shouldn't have done because I didn't know enough about it. And I was uh, shooting in New York City for a bunch of friends of mine that I had gone to film school with and we were doing sort of a desktop show kind of like a Conan O'Brien show no it was more like a weekend update show from a Saturday Night Live but we were doing it on a rooftop with the city as the backdrop so I had to light this uh, little set with a small package very small package I think the largest light that we had in that package was probably a 1k probably a 1k and uh, I remember I was racing around because as always with productions there's never enough time so you're running around you got your hands in a bit of everything. And I remember picking up two power cables to plug them in. And one of the ends was just frayed. And I electrocuted myself. And I think that's probably the second or third time I've done that. Um, so just understand that when you're working with light and you're plugging things in, oftentimes it's easy to get disconnected. Um, and just see it as a piece of tool, like technology and a piece of tool, especially with like the LED lights. Uh, because they feel like toys, essentially. So it's very easy to forget that a lot of this stuff needs power, right? Be smart. Don't like, don't be like me. I'm a fucking idiot. Be smart with it. But that being said, get your hands on some stuff. Play with that stuff. Look at what you can do with light. Um, I love it. And as you know, when you look at my accounts, I spend a lot of time doing it. Uh, and these days, most of the time, I'm usually lighting for Gino because uh, I usually don't do my own stuff. Kruda comes in and does his magic. He does his cinematographer magic for me. Um, but uh, I still love it. And once you get your head wrapped around how light works, then it will affect how you plan your shots. And if you look at any of my storyboard stuff, you'll see that I'm actually drawing in light. I actually draw in the angle of light that I want and all that stuff, because it's such an important element to telling stories. Anyway, that's it. That's today's episode. As always, thanks for listening. Uh, plenty more episodes on the way. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have, I don't know, we're like five or six episodes out at this point. 
Maybe maybe COVID will be over, so we don't have to do COVID specials, but most likely we'll be doing a COVID special this week. If not, I will see you next Tuesday. <laughs>